Good morning, everybody. Thank you for praying about moving up closer to the front. It's always great to see how, how the Spirit is at work in the church to move the people of God and fellowship together. <laughs> yeah, moving forward and onward and upward. We're continuing in the, the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at uh, 1.6 to 4.49 is the section we're going to try to get through this morning. And as always, in going through these books, it always feels too fast, So, which necessitates having to leave some things out and having to determine you know, the bigger points that need to be articulated. So if you're taking notes for this class, uh, these are some of the main things you want to write down. What I wrote up here is the stuff that I, I write in my Bible that's in the margin to help me you know, collect a, a book. And when I go back to, to read it, I can remember these sort of things. So for the, the book of Deuteronomy, the, the theme of it, which you know, I write uh, right below the book title right there in my Bible, I'll just stick it right there. So God prepares his nation to enter the land. That's the theme for the book. And the section we looked at last week was the first five verses, and I made the point that this is the book that makes the difference between the past and the future. So as God's preparing his nation, he's explained to them what had happened to them in the past and where they're going in the future, which affects everything about how they live in the present moment. And today's section that we're going to look at in 164 through 49 it's God's continual faithfulness being recounted in a sermon by Pastor Moses. And I think the purpose of it is to teach worldview and motivate obedience. That's the purpose behind him doing that. So there's some things you can write down when you read through this section on your own to consider it. And maybe you would want to refine these statements so you can consider, did I come up with a good way of summarizing what that section was? about. When it comes to reading Deuteronomy, there's, I think, some difficulties on our end in reading it because we tend to read the Bible selfishly in a way. We think about, well, what does this have to do with me? How is this book relevant to me? But I flipped that around and said, well, instead we should be asking, how am I relevant to the Bible? How am I relevant to Deuteronomy? And we probably, you know, when it comes to knowing things about what the Bible teaches, we know more about what it says about us as an individual in relationship to God, but we know less about what it says about our relation to, you know, a corporate body, whether it be, uh, you know, Israel to one another within that nation or us in relation to the church. And we know perhaps even less about uh, God's overall plan throughout all of history. But when you think about the Bible, does it spend more time talking about just you and your relationship with Jesus or more time talking about you know, a corporate body and their relationship to his global cosmic plan? The latter, the latter <laughs> is the, the answer. It, it spends most of the time talking about it. Now, both of those 
uh, our, our realities. There is your you know, individual relationship to God where we, you know, Scripture talks about things, about you know, how, how we live as a, a Christian in the church or how we live in a, a marriage or how we're to uh, act in the, the workplace or on you know, ideas on evangelizing people, apologetics. We know some stuff about that. But when it comes to, well, what is God's kingdom? You know, we're, we're stumped because we know perhaps little about it or we haven't taken the time to define it, which is why we had a Sunday school class on kingdom and covenants, in which we talked about the, the covenants or the, you know, the framework for all of scripture. They explain all of history and the, the theology that informs how you think about the world that you live in. And I would venture to guess that, you know, there were a lot of... Uh, new things that were presented to you and that that you had some familiarity with and I'm just assuming that you're you were like me in that when I came across those things I just I I didn't realize how significant these things were in scripture and interpreting the Bible and history and the time that I I live in and thinking through how things like the Noahic covenant or Abrahamic covenant and Mosaic covenant helped me not only to read the Bible but to understand life now you think about the bible you know the the epistles are the books that kind of zero in on what we would see as you know the places where we get personal application but when you think about scripture as a whole is most of it epistles or is most of it narrative most of it's just stories it's just stories about what God has done throughout history and the emphasis is put on that you know the emphasis isn't on you and your relationship with God but a plan that he's been working out with a people that connects to the beginning and the ending now you can think about this perhaps uh, in how you think about sanctification when when you think about sanctification what are some of the things you think about Okay, think about the Holy Spirit. Other things you think about when you think about sanctification. Joe. Yeah, you think about you, know, you putting to death the, the remnants of the old man in your life. Other things you think of when you think about sanctification. What did you say? Yeah, the Lord bringing things. Yeah, the Lord bringing challenging things into to our lives. What does your sanctification have to do with other people? If you if you do a word search on the word sanctification in the New Testament, there are none of them that apply only to an individual ever. Like anytime you read like you or your, it's never just ref, it's never just referring to you. <laughs> it's never just referring to one person in a, in a congregation. But there's just something about you know the independent mind, or maybe even just being influenced by American culture. Where we read it, you like me. This is talking about me, but we're not hearing the y'all that is actually there. Which, yeah. well, I mean, what can you do about that? I, but just know most of the user are y'alls. <laughs> and 
the, the Bible has more to say about your sanctification in relation to everybody else and more to say about it in relationship to what God wants to, to teach the whole world about his cosmic redemption. Uh, we see this in Hebrews 12, if you want to flip over there for an example of this. Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12:14 Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now when we read this we tend to just kind of see ourselves all of a, all alone in a room and this is something for me to do and it is. But this command as he's saying he's saying y'all do this. Like your whole congregation do this. This isn't just for you. This is for all of you together. And then you see how this, well, one, it, it already relates to the corporate church just in how that imperative is being used. But you see it more clearly in the next verse, 15. It says, seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. So now it's not, you're not just saying, you see that view of sanctification is not just you, it's see that nobody falls short of the grace of God. So now you're concerned about everybody else's sanctification too. And it says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. This is your, your sanctification, uh, it affects everybody else. If, if you're not growing it, you're defiling other people. If you're letting other people not like you're preventing them from growing in it or not helping them in it, you're defiling them and allowing them to be a defilement within the church. But this sanctification, you know, as, as we see when we think about it, we tend to think about it, you know, individualistic terms. Uh, my Bible reading plan, uh, the, the trials that happen to me, the sins that I'm trying to put to death. But the Bible mostly puts it in the context of you with everybody else, like you're going to have an effect on everybody else and they need your help to walk with Christ together. This isn't something that you're doing, but y'all are doing. You know, the church is always spoken to and instructed as a corporate entity. Now, how does sanctification relate to God's plan for all of history? Why is there a struggle with sin right now in your life? Why didn't God just make you instantly perfect? And you're not, by the way, if you think that you are. We'll just ask somebody else who knows you. <laughs> Why is it that way? Yeah, so it's, it's to make something known about God, but it's to make something known about his global plan ultimately. I think you see this sort of logic from Romans 7 to Romans 8. You know, Romans 7, Paul ends it with saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? And then he moves into, how, well, how does his sanctification relate to God's global plan? 
He says, well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And then as he continues on in all of this, he's talking about his suffering. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he says, when you think about your sanctification, why do you have this struggle? Well, it's to show that it, we're being removed from the beginning and moving to a certain ending. It's showing this certain tension and that things aren't as they ought to be. They're not in glory yet, but they are going to be in that. And your life is a testimony to the world that God's global plan is to deliver sinners to becoming saints who become glorified saints. So you see, when we think about something like sanctification, it's, we shouldn't just think of me we should think about our relationship to everybody else and what does it communicate about God's global plan because he wants to teach something about himself and how his salvation is at work right now and going to be working out through history. I bring all of this up because Deuteronomy is a book that very much does this thing that I'm talking about where it's you know, it's addressing the individual's relationship to God, but it's in the context of a corporate body showing them their relationship to his plan throughout history. He's a, he connects them all the way back to the beginning of time and of their nation in the past, but he also explains everything that's going to happen to them in the future. He, he goes ahead and he tells them about the exile that they're going to go into, the circumcision of heart that they're going to need, and that God's going to meet them in exile, to bring them out of exile by giving them new hearts. And we want to read the Bible that way because that's how the Bible authors read it. And that's how they wrote it. They wrote it this way. They read it this way. God gave it to, it, to us this way. So don't read the Bible selfishly. Think about other people and God's plan for all of history. That's my, the sum of my exhortation there. Now, God's people here at this, this point, he's, he's preparing the hearts of those who would enter into his land. But then the question is, how, how do you cultivate a, a heart for God uh, among the people of God? Well, it's by having his faithfulness recounted to them. That's how you do it. You give them a perspective on how to think about the world and their place in it, and that's what motivates obedience because you know this is going somewhere. And as you keep learning throughout the Bible, and it's not dependent on you. <laughs> it's not dependent on your works or anything that you do. Uh, you can't change if exile happens. And you also can't change that God is going to redeem everything on the planet absolutely. You can't mess up his plan, but you can understand your part in it and engage in cultivating a heart that's about his heart for his people and his whole creation. And as I had talked about this book being focused on the heart, it, it defines the nature of love. And one of the things that you're going to see about love here is that love recounts. Love recounts God's faithfulness. It, it positions itself to continually remember that God has been faithful, which we're doing that while we're reading Deuteronomy, by the way. We're saying, look, God was faithful in the past. He hasn't changed. 
Just reading that God was faithful then reminds me that he's going to be faithful today and all of the things that's happening in my life and whatever may come in the future, he's going to continue to be faithful. And that liberates us to love him and to obey him in the present moment. Throughout this section, you'll read about lessons of faith. You know, you, you, you have faith in God because he's faithful. You read about the nature of a real leader. Moses is going to talk about that. And ideas of justice and righteousness, which is all related to God's global plan and where these people fit within it. Because there's going to be a day when the government is upon the shoulder of one leader, but the 12 tribes of Israel are under him, and then there's people under them with all of us ruling in his kingdom on earth. And so it's looking forward to that. You know, he's giving a, a picture to Israel that you're supposed to be this, but you're not, and you can't. But one day, I'm going to make you exactly what I told you you should be. So verses 6 through 18 begin with Moses preaching about the, the, organizi- the organizing of this nation. So Pastor Moses begins preaching about Israel's history, but he's not just retelling it to him, but he's interpreting it in light of God who created it and was shaping it. And so he sets before them their great covenant redeemer, which was seeing you know, who he was and what he has done for them was what was to motivate their loving him and obeying him. And, and they're standing in a particular geographic place where previously when Israel had got together there, they grumbled against God, they rebelled against him. And this new generation of Israelites, right while they're standing there in this place, they could look back at all the grave sites behind them with all their dead parents And they could look in front of them and see the land that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and it had passed on to them. Right where they're standing, they can see both the graveyard and the promised land while they're hearing this sermon. And so Moses recounts God's covenant promise to Abraham to them. Look at verse 8. He says, See, I have given over the land before you. Go in and possess the land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and to their seed after them. See here, this, this was God's land. As we read that back in Leviticus 25, uh, the Lord said, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but sojourners and foreign residents with me in that land. And you see that God's given them a worldview that you interpret history through the Abrahamic covenant. And we're still to do that today. That wasn't just for Israel then. We're still to be interpreting history and what's happening in the world through that covenant which God made with Abraham that went on to Isaac to Jacob, all the way even to us and generations beyond us. And what he does here is he highlights God's faithfulness to his promise. It's like, why are you standing right here looking at the promised land right now? Because God is faithful. He promised he was going to do this. How do you know? Look at it. It's, it's right in front of you. He has given it to you. The only thing that's missing is you have to go and possess it. 
So this highlights God's faithfulness to his promise, which helped them to recount why there were so many of them. Why were there a whole bunch of Israelites at this point in history? Look at verses 10 through 11. It says, Yahweh, your God, has multiplied you. So when you just look at how are you supposed to understand why there's a whole bunch of people around you? (laughs) Yahweh, your God, has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. May Yahweh, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. Look at God's faithfulness to his promise and expect him to keep being faithful to this promise. Now, as you know, in Scripture, the, the Israelites and way later in the New Testament, the people called the Judaizers, they, they misunderstood the law as God's end goal. Like God's end goal was just, here, here's the law instruction, you guys follow it, and that'll fix all the nations on the planet. And eventually you can set up one ruler that'll just rule everybody and bring about some sort of like Israelite culture to the planet. Well, that was a misunderstanding and that what's pointed out in Romans and the book of Galatians is that the end goal was Christ. You know, the law was merely a tutor that was teaching you, you need to move out of Moses' house and go live under Christ's roof. It's weird when you're grown up to keep living with your parents for too long. And so within this, you know, this childhood of the people of God, you could think of it like he kind of gave them like some toys to play with to teach them things like the, the tabernacle and all of this sort of stuff. He said, but eventually like you grow up and you don't, you don't need those toys anymore. Uh, and you got to move out of the house and, and quit playing with those things and move on to the greater thing. Your, your toy trains were to, to teach you to grow up to be a, an engineer or a conductor of a real train or the, you know, pushing around the little trucks and running the, the RC car was so that you could grow up and drive a real car someday. <laughs> I think you get the idea. Then in verses 12 to 18, yeah, Moses at this point, he, he recounts his burden and trying to lead all of these people. And he said, you know, how, how can I alone bear the load and burden of you in your strife? But God told him and used Gentile Jethro to, he kind of did this reversal thing where he used Gentile Jethro to, to bless Israel instead of Israel, you know, being a blessing to the nations. And he says, choose wise and understanding and experienced men from your tribes and I'll appoint them as your heads. Now, now think about this, you know, the this isn't just to focus on something, you know, uh, on an individual necessarily, but God's wanting them to think about their relationship as a corporate body that's expressing something about his global plan. So what is he, I mean, why is he giving them leaders? What does he want to communicate through this corporate body of people to the whole world about what his global plan is? He's going to rule the whole thing through delegated uh, authority, and it's going to involve all the tribes of Israel. This is, this, you guys are supposed to be a picture of that, but you're not going to. You don't want to. You don't understand me, but one day God's going to give you a listening heart, and he's going to do all of this stuff for you because you're actually not able to accomplish any of it yourselves. <laughs> and so all of this, you know, it isn't just for them to, to have a, a better nation, but to communicate something about his global plan. 
Now it's true that we can learn from this even as a church to that the distribution of responsibilities and leadership should belong to, to wise men and you know there's practical wisdom like you know one guy shouldn't try to do everything. It should be divided up between many men to prevent personal fatigue. And they needed leaders who were committed to, to being righteous themselves to give an example to others because everybody's to be reflecting the righteousness of God together. And as we've talked about, you know, why is this important for the end of the ages? You know, Paul picked up on this theology when he addressed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? One day you guys are going to be in charge of governing stuff over the whole planet. And and if that's true, can can you not just figure out some things among yourself and not have to involve uh, other governing officials and some of the things you're trying to sort out and your sorted relationship stuff? Present leadership among God's people is, it's a dim mirror. It's a dim mirror of a, a perfect leadership that's going to come at the culmination of history in Christ's second coming when the the governing of his people is upon his shoulders. In this, we also see that God freely and sovereignly chose Israel. You know, they, they didn't choose him. Uh, and one of the things I've, I've kind of found interesting about this is that is Israel is, you know, taught later in chapter 6, to, you know, the Yahweh your God is one. Israel, they did not become monotheistic until at least the book of Kings. <laughs> like, they, did, they didn't understand this idea that, oh, there's only one God. There's only one. They didn't get that for centuries. Now, the only place that God's people can ever truly enjoy freedom is by obeying him, by being bound to him. Their relationship to God and possession of the land are also inseparable from one another. If they're going to have a relationship with God, they have to obey the command to go in the land. And the land throughout Deuteronomy continues to be referred to as a possession and an inheritance. So if it's a possession, that means you have, to, you have to go and take ownership of it. Otherwise, you don't get it. But it's also an inheritance in which it's going to be given to you anyways. It's going to be there. But what Moses recounts to them in this section is their inability to enter the land in their own strength over and over. So you remember when you know, the, the spies and numbers, they go and spy out the land and like there's tall people there, you know, you know we'll, we'll never make it. We're just like grasshoppers before them. He says, this is who you guys are. God, God gives you the land and you just come back and talk about how you can't do it. <laughs> it's like, this is your history. This is how you should understand yourself, that God is giving you the land. He's telling you to possess it, but you can't. So what are you going to do? I, what this should make you do is, is say, well, Lord, send somebody to do it for us then. <laughs> if this is how it works, send somebody to give us the thing that you promised because you have to because you promised it and you know that we can't do it. So you see how all of this is pointing to 
the need for a savior, you know, the need for Christ to come and accomplish what they can't. In verses 19 through 46, he goes on to talk about their failure to conquer. And God gave them the land, but they continually failed to take it. You know, look at verse 21 with me. It says, see, Yahweh your God has given over the land before you. Go up, take possession. As Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you, do not fear or be dismayed. And what, what was the tendency of these people when they looked over in, into the land? To fear or be dismayed. Do the people of God still do that today? I, says, I want you to, to go out and, and to be a, a light to other people. I want you to be a city on a hill as a corporate body that demonstrates the love of God by you loving one another and people knowing that Christ came to the, the planet to, to reconcile people to himself and sinners to one another by the fact that the church loves one another. Did you, did you know that we're evangelizing people right now? Just by the fact that we're gathered right here and people know that there are Christians out there who love one another. But as we think about that, we think, but there's all this scary stuff happening. What if they pass this law? Or what if this nation does this, that, or the other thing? And we put our fear and dread into what this governing entity might do or this nation might do, and we're fearful and we're dismayed. But Moses goes on to explain how they responded to all of this in verses 26 to 27. He says, yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God. And you grumbled in your tents and said, because Yahweh hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And he goes on later in verses 29 to 32. You need to look at 32. Uh, well, okay, let's look at... We'll just read 29 to 32. And he says, Then I said to you, do not be in dread nor fear them. Yahweh your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. So who's the only fighter in the war? It's only Yahweh. There isn't, there isn't another. So when they turn around, they say, well, we'll fight. He says, I will fight for you. Why are you telling me you will fight? I'm saying that I'm going to do this. He says, just as he did for you in, in Egypt before your eyes. He said, remember how that worked? Like, how many of you had to do anything in that battle against Egypt to come out of there? They're like, we don't remember. <laughs> uh, and in the wilderness where you saw how Yahweh your God carried you. So you see, God here, he's, he's a divine warrior, but he's also a divine father. He says, just as a man carries his son. It's like, how, how did I carry you out there? I carried you like a father carries his son. That, that's how I care for you and, and nurture you and all the way which you walked until you came to this place. But he says, for all this, you did not believe Yahweh your God. Which he's here prosecuting them. You know, he's in, indicting them with the charge of, you know, you guys are like your parents. This is what your heart is like. But... Even so, God was a guide for them. He was the one who would fight for them. He was the one who was a father to them, and he guided them. As you read in verse 33, 
you know, who goes before you on your way to spy out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. So in all of this, you know, God was a lamp unto their feet. You know, he was always showing them where they needed to go. He was a present guide to them. So all of this is saying, look how faithful God is to you. You're God. But he also says, look at what you're like. You're rebellious, you're grumblers, you misplace your dread and your fear. Uh, you have a loss of memory of God's faithfulness. And you think that just mere words will fix this relationship apart from actually obeying him. What you see that in verse 41, Moses says, you know, then you guys said to me, we have sinned against Yahweh. We will indeed go up and fight just as Yahweh our God commanded us. Now, you see what they said, they were, they were like Pharaoh in a way. They said, oh, we've, we've sinned against God. Can you take the bad consequences away? <laughs> you know, just let us be comfortable. Let us maintain, you know, current comforts and not be placed in a place uh, of discomfort. You know, they weren't truly repentant and they thought, you know, maybe this will persuade Yahweh to just kind of back off. But what he was interested in wasn't some sort of just external expression. He wasn't just looking, just, you know, say you're sorry and give each other a hug. <laughs> He's like, I want your heart. I want you to love me. Thus, because this whole there was a whole generation that was rebellious and grumbling and all of these things. They were sentenced to 40 years in the wilderness for their rebellion. And you know, this new generation is standing in exactly that spot. You know, this is the exact geographical location where our parents did all of this stuff. And so just every time that they would just see this place, it was to be a, a reminder to them. And anywhere they went, there was always geography that was teaching theology to them. But there was this guy who was different than them that is set up as an example. You uh, know him as Caleb. And back in Numbers 14, 24, it says of Caleb, it says, but my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his seed shall take possession of it. And you see what made Caleb different was he had a different spirit than the other people. It's like, well, what does this different spirit do? You, know, you read about this later in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart. It's like, well, where does this different spirit come from? A circumcised heart. And he says, and the, the heart of your seed. So it would be not only Caleb, but people who were other children of Abraham who had come after him. And what would a, a circumcised heart produce? It says, to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And Ezekiel, being a, a preacher of the Torah, he pulls both of these things together, the, the spirit and the heart. And it, when he preaches about the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the thing that's going to, to make everything different isn't you trying to follow my instruction. It has to be by my spirit giving you a new heart. You, you have to be 
regenerated. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 is about the wilderness wanderings, and here Moses recounts that God was faithful to them even in the wilderness, even when they were sentenced to 40 years of judgment. He was faithful to them. And he had, he was, now we want to think about this, he wasn't just faithful to his promises, but also to his threats of judgment. Now, they're looking at the promised land right in front of them, which God's faithful to his promises. We're looking at the land. But God's also faithfulness to when he says, if you don't do this, I'll kill you. They could see that right behind them. You know, God's faithful. If he says he's going to judge you, he's going to judge you. You know, look, look at the tombstones. But if God says that you're going to go into to a land, he's faithful. It's, it's right there in front of you. Deuteronomy 2.7 expresses this idea of God's faithfulness in the wilderness this way, 2.7. For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years Yahweh your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Which they had some like really awesome shoes that never wore out and I'd like to get some of those for my kids. <laughs> We're gonna have, we're gonna s- speed up through a little section here, and in two sixteen to thirty seven, it comes back to talking about them conquering Sihon, and then chapter three picks up with conquering Og. You know, right? Sihon and Og become reminders of the reality that God is faithful, and when He says He's going to fight for you, He does it. He says, you know, this was I said it was like kind of like a like the Apostles' Creed for the Israelites. You know, we, we talk about, the, you know, believing in the Virgin Mary and all of that sort of stuff. Well, in their creed, it's like, you know, we, we believe that he conquered Sihon and Og. You know, it was part of the Israelite creed. And what it was a reminder of is that God is aware and involved in everything happening in every nation. He knows what's going on with Sihon and Og, and no one can stand in his way or stay his hand. Because he points out, it's like, look at these other nations. Every single one of them was stronger than you, bigger than you, and better than you. So you guys are like a bunch of farmers, but not, because you haven't even started farming. Like, you just like carry around animals and used to make bricks all the time. Like, you don't even have good military weapons. <laughs> and in all of this, God is, you know, recounts their mission to them. This is in 318, that's where I'm picking up, 318. It says, then I commanded you at that time, saying, Yahweh your God has given you this land to possess it. All you men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel, but your wife and your, your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you. Until Yahweh gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also possess the land which Yahweh your God will give them beyond the Jordan. So look at this. He's like, you are going to get the land. You are going to fail, and you are going to get the land, 
which should make you ask, well, how does that work? Like, if we're going to fail, but we're supposed to possess it, how does that work? Which again, you have to say, well, God, you're going to have to do this for us then. <laughs> like you told us how this, this all works and it, it shows us our need for you to do the things that you have commanded us to do and to be. And verse 22, uh, let's do 21 and 22. It says, and I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that Yahweh your God has done to these two kings. So he's saying, you know, Sihon and Og, remember that. He says, so Yahweh shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. Do not fear them, for Yahweh your God is the one fighting for you. So this is worldview perspective. This is a global plan, history of all time perspective that he's given them. And then he moves to exhorting them to obey God's law in chapter 4. And you can hear the nature of this command in the first two verses. It says, So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to do, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you. You know, the, na the nature of the, the command is faithfulness that has its precedent in a God who is faithful. Because God has been faithful, you be faithful. And he builds out this idea, listen, listening always means obedience. You can never, listening is not just hearing without doing. When he says, listen, he doesn't just mean, I, I want you to comprehend what I'm saying and just nod when I'm done. <laughs> it's like, I want you to do what I said. It's not enough to be a hearer of the word only, but one who also loves to be a doer. Now, when you read that statement, you shall not add, is this just a statement that's made to you personally while you're reading your Bible all by yourself in your personal devotions? The you is a y'all. He's saying, you know, y'all shall not add to these words. Y'all shall not take away from them. Therefore, y'all need to keep each other accountable in this. You're doing this together. You're not just doing this as an individual. You're doing this with concern to, to everybody else. And all of this has implications that reach all the way into the end. The very last book of the Bible in all of time. So it has to do not only with them as a corporate body, but the culmination of history. Who could think of a cross-reference of do not add or take away that's all the way out in Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19. I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Which is talking about way more than just revelation, which should be, you know, made obvious by referencing the plagues all the way back in Exodus, the tree of life all the way back in Genesis. 
He says that the ending is going back to the beginning. So to motivate them to faithfully obey, one of the first things that he reminds them of is Baal Peor. Remember, this was uh, an event that went on the calendar, similar to like 9-11 for us. When you hear 9-11, nobody has to explain it to you unless you're like a millennial or Gen Z or something like that. But when somebody says to remember that, they don't have to explain the event. You just remember everything from it. And this continues to happen throughout, you know, the rest of the First Testament. You just hear, remember Baal, Peor. You're like, oh, no, (laughs) we should obey God and not disobey him because of what happened there. What happened there? What happened at Baal, Peor? The fella with the Moabite gal, like after a, a whole bunch of Israel's leaders had involved people in Baal worship because the prophet... The false prophet Balaam got them involved in it. They, they hung them. The way they hung them, they stuck a spear through them, and then they would carry them outside of the camp and then stick that spear down in the ground. And, you know, everybody could see, you know, the dead bodies of fathers, brothers, leaders, all outside the camp. And then this guy tries to keep doing the same thing. You know, he gets a Moabite gal and tries to bring her into the tent. But Phineas recognizes your lack of sanctification defiles everybody. You bring this in here, it's going to be bad for everybody. So he takes a spear and he puts it through both of them and says, and he made atonement for the people. And God made a covenant of peace with Abraham, which is one of these covenants that we want to remember in Scripture that helps us to understand God's plan for history, which is God will accept a righteousness substitute. Uh, He will accept somebody doing what is righteous in your place and representing everybody else so that they can have righteousness credited to them even though they did nothing to deserve it or to earn it. That's a good one. That's one one of my favorite covenants in the Bible. Maybe because it's so like obscure and few people ever talk about it. And it has really awesome theology to worship the Lord for built into it as we would expect. So that was the event of Baal Peor. That's what happened there. He says, remember that. And this is why you should obey God, because when you don't, he kills you. This, this obedience to Yahweh is a matter of life and death. So that's how you should think about this. And he tells them, you should also obey not only because of that, but uh, because of the historical impact that it's going to have. And you could see this. Verse 6, verse 6 says, You shall keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom, your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, what he's teaching them is when he's saying, When you guys live out God's law instruction, you'll start living out the theology of the law and and everything that you do and people are going to start seeing this is what God is like. This is how his salvation works. And it was built into all all of the, the law instruction that Israel received, but it had a purpose which was to be seen by others. So the other nations would look at it and say, these people are wise and understanding, but where did they get this stuff from? 
Well, they got it from the only wise God who understands everything because he made everything. Which all of this sets up for wisdom literature later in the Bible, which one book had already been written, which was Job, and then later Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, those things that the wisest fool in the whole Bible wrote. His name's Solomon. Israel was truly a unique and privileged nation. There is not another one that is like them. Or better yet, there isn't one who has a God like they have. They were privileged with belonging to and being told what God expected of them. Did God do this for any other nation at this point in history? No, it, it was only Israel, which, you know, this is how Paul understands his eschatology when you get into Romans 9 through 11. He's like, look at all the stuff that God has given them. They got the covenants and the, the oracles of God belong to these people. All of this has implications for evangelism and eschatology. You know, so it has uh, implications for our witness in the world and how we understand what happens in the end of the age and Peter picks up on this, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12, when he talks to us in, in a similar vein saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So that's how we're to understand ourselves. We're sojourners and exiles, which relates us in the past to what people? Yeah, Israelites. And to do the same thing that they were to do, which was to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. We just think, well, the thing that's waging war against my soul is like bad legislation and China. Lay off the TikTok, people. It's dangerous. That's another no. He's saying the, the, the war is in your soul. It's fleshly lust in you. It's not outside of you. It's in you. It says, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles. So look at that. You're living out this wisdom to be seen. And when the wisdom is seen, it's evangelistic to the world so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So that they'll glorify God at the second coming. So you see what this, uh, Peter's doing this thing, this phenomenon that I've talked about, where it's not just talking, this, that Bible verse isn't just talking about you as an individual, but it's tying you back into the past to think about your position within a corporate body of other people in relation to what God is doing at the end of the age. I hope that I've made that point really good because it, it makes your Bible reading way more exciting because you're like, oh, I get it and I haven't seen this before. Like the, the universe is bigger than me. <laughs> Ed. Yeah, the, this is one of the things we had talked about in Exodus where salvation is more than just being delivered, but it's also necessarily things are destroyed. So in uh, God's glory, when he's glorified, it's not deliverance only, but it's also destruction. So it's like everybody's going to bow the knee to him. Everybody's going to glorify him. Uh, either by, by bowing the knee to him in, in this life, which is, I think is 
the point of this passage here. They're going to glorify him because they've been given new hearts to walk in new ways and to be a picture of the new creation to come. But there also is a glorification of God in the destruction of those who don't, which he's simultaneously warning about that because he's saying, God's going to come to visit again and what's he going to find you doing? And what kind of relationship are you going to have with him in that moment? Because in that moment, that relationship can never change. It's going to be that way forever. So what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? It is great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God to have a redemptive historical impact, which we still learn from today, and which we are still to see ourselves in a part of it. Stephen Dempster in his book on Dominion and Dynasty writes, this, this shows that sonship means belonging to Yahweh and reflecting his likeness, which is manifested in obedience to the Torah. So you know, like, well, how do I reflect God? Well, I obey him. What do I obey? The things that he instructed me to do. And when I do that, I glorify God by making his image known throughout the world in the place that he's put you. And... Within this, God gives a sneak peek into the future of Israel and what she tells them in all these things. He says, you guys are going to fail. You're going to go into exile, but God will return you home someday. And Moses, throughout this section, you hear him keep using the word today. You know, again, verse 8. So what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Verse 26 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. Verse 39, he says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other. So remember, these people were not monotheist, which that really gets emphasized at the end of Joshua when they're, you know, they're all holding their idols and Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. And they say, we will follow Yahweh. He says, then lay down the idols. Like, we will follow Yahweh. But we're taking our stuff with us. It's like, you guys don't get this. <laughs> you see, he's, he's calling Israel to a point of decision. You know, this is like, you know, when you hear the preacher say, today is the day of salvation. So, you know, don't procrastinate in this. You don't know that you'll have tomorrow. Make a decision today that you will belong to the God who is worthy of your worship, that your, your love will be shown to him in obedience. You're obligated to be committed to him like he's committed to you. He deserves it. You were made for this. Think about the high privilege that he's given to you and that he's made himself known to you. He has told you how to live how many people has he done this for on the planet? Not very many, but you guys have it. It's like, you guys have a Bible. I'm not talking about, I'm saying them and you. But you have a Bible. You can read it. 
You have the spirit at work in you to, to live by it. It's like, don't neglect these things. Make a decision to be about these things today. One of the things that, that love does when we, as we learn about the, the nature of love throughout this book is that love remembers and recounts rather than forgetting. Now, the idea of forgetting throughout Scripture here, it, you could, a synonym would be apathy. You know, it wasn't just, oh, it just slipped my mind. It's like, well, the reason you're not thinking about it is because you're not putting him, you're not doing things in remembrance of him. Uh, you're, you're choosing not to, to hear the preaching of the word. You're choosing not to be in fellowship with other people. That's how you fail to recount what God has done to establish you know, a covenant relationship with him. So God is interested in a heart that does not forget. See this in verse 9. He says, only keep yourself and keep your soul very carefully lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So that raises the question, well, how do you do that? So verse 10, remember the day that you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, when Yahweh said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may cause them to hear my words. So think, of, how do you remember? Assemble the people. Now, think about something in your life where the people are assembled and you're brought into remembrance of God's word and this other thing happens you know that I may cause them to hear my words is there any place where you're ever assembled and caused to hear the word of God so that you may learn to fear him all the days that you live on the earth and teach them to your children at your house or children's church Sunday school does anybody get it what I'm trying to allude to here like this thing that's happening right now. The thing that happens at 1030. You know, here even in this room, we assemble and are caused to hear the word of God. You know, this is how we express a, a, a love to him. Like I'm committed to this. And so I'm here with the people being caused to hear his words so that I'll learn to, to fear him and so that I'll be positioned to be able to teach future generations to prevent them also from apathy. Another thing that uh, love does is that it guards from idolatry. Take this from verse 15 and following. It says, so keep your souls very carefully. So this is something you've got to be super careful about. This is uh, you know, the biblical counseling movement, if you're kind of familiar with that. They're the people that are really super about specializing in this sort of thing, which is how we got this book on the book rack called Bitterness. Maybe you don't think that you're a bitter person, but if you read it, you think, man, like, I'm a bigger sinner than I ever realized, but God has more grace than I also ever realized, and I know what needs to change. <laughs> so if you want that book, there's two of them there on the book spinner. So keep your souls very carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. So it's the idea of idolatry and he goes through this order of creation but it going backwards he goes backwards through the days of creation it says you know when you're you're worshiping things that aren't God you're actually reversing the way that he intended things to go you know man is made at the end of creation in the image of God so that he would be a worshiper of God rather than reverting back to 
worshiping animals or the land or sky, water, lights in the sky. And it's like, you know, the heart of unregenerate man to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images and the likeness of corruptible man. I have a lot of really good stuff that I have to skip here, but it is all in your copy of God's Word in Deuteronomy, first four chapters, so you know, read those. When it comes to thinking, you know, what is an idol? Like we all have idols in our, in our lives and we need help to identify them. And it's something that we do together, you know, as a, as a corporate body. So anything that rivals God in your life is an idol. Now, anything that we serve in the place of God is an idol. Now, it might not for us be wood or stone that's carved creatures that we made, but we could still use, utilize wood or stone for a home project. You know, you're, you're devoted to your landscaping. You're devoted to uh, your home remodel. And I know those things have to get done, but when it's idolatry is when it's to the detriment of service that should be dedicated to God. You're neglecting that. It's, it's taking a lower priority. You know, you're not, you're not taking the, the wood and making it like a, you know, a little creature or whatever and bowing down to it, but you are getting on your knees to move that stuff around and you are <laughs> devoted to it. You know, we want to be able to see that sort of stuff. And you're also kind of picking up on the idea where God's bringing up that even concepts are idolatrous. It's not just the stuff that you make. You know, it's unseen things as well. He says, just like I'm the God who hasn't seen, you can't make me seen or make up other invisible concepts about me that are incorrect. Idols can be anything in the world from spouses to children to hobby to food to projects to knowing stuff about things to seeking comfort entertainment, to wanting to be recognized for the things that you do and who you are. Now, things in the world were given to us for our joy, but I think of what, you know, the Apostle Paul said. He says, you know, I make use of the world, but not full use. It's like, well, Paul, why do you do that? I mean, why don't you take more vacations? He's like, well, I do, I do sometimes, but he says, I'm going to live again. <laughs> like, I'm not going to miss out on anything. Like, well, Paul, you really got to get over to see this place sometime, which he did travel a lot, by the way. But he's like, it doesn't matter. If I, I'm not going to miss out on anything in life because I'm going to live forever. So, he's, he's, so I can be spent for the sake of the gospel. How did Riccardi put that when we heard those sermons? Spend and be spent for the gospel. You will live again. Quote from one of our previous pastors, Mike Riccardi. Also, well, this, this chapter goes on to encourage obedience because of the certainty of God's judgment. He brings up the, the tensions that I had mentioned of, you know, God's going to honor the Abrahamic covenant, but he is going to give them over in exile to serve those false gods. You see that in verses 25 to 29, uh, here's the exile verse 27, and Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples 
And you will remain few in number among the nations where Yahweh drives you. And there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him. You will search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the last days, you will return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice. So as you hear that there, he's telling them, he's telling them the whole Bible. <laughs> so here's everything Genesis to Revelation. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to go to exile. I'm going to meet you there because I'm going to tell you later that I'm Emmanuel. I'm the one who is God with us. And I'm going to break the exile. And in the last days, all of you are going to come to me. And throughout this, there's these statements. I hadn't made a list of them throughout this lesson, but you can go back and read them. Like verse 31 says, For Yahweh your God. It tells you there's all of these uh, potent, beautiful definitions of who God is throughout this section. Here's one of them. He says, for Yahweh your God is a compassionate God. See, you know, taking notes on systematic theology, theology proper. And it's like, well, what do we learn about God here from Moses? Yahweh your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you. Because you're going to think that he's going to fail you. You're going to think that he's going to destroy you. And he says, nor forget the covenant with your fathers because it's going to look that way to you and you're going to assess it that way, which he swore to them. And I just want to show you this little section here. How are we going to get through this whole book this semester? You remember I'm talking about how history is theology, those things are tied together? I'm just going to read through this and kind of point that out starting in verse 32. So here's some history. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and lived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation with trials, with signs, and wonders, and with war, and with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with great terrors, as Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Now, here's the theology piece from the history. It says, to you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God. There is no other besides him. Back to the history lesson. Out of the heavens he caused you to hear his voice, to discipline you, and on earth he caused you to see his great fire, and you heard his words from the midst of the fire, because he loved your fathers. Therefore he chose their seed after them, and he personally brought you from Egypt by his great power, dispossessing before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is today. Here's the theology lesson. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. And then 
from this historical theological lesson, he now gives practical sermon application. Verse 40, what do we do with this, Moses? He says, so you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days on the land which Yahweh your God is giving you for all the days. Now that section there has you know, some of the best descriptions of God's uniqueness and his faithfulness and we're going to kind of make it. We're only a little bit late, but we're going to wrap it up here. What we see here is in the nature of covenant love is that it, it, it involves a, an unshakable commitment to faithfulness. And you see God, God's faithfulness, unshakable. What does it look like to love him, to have an unshakable commitment to him? And as we had talked about how the, the law expresses things, the, the instruction that was given to this nature was to teach things about God and his salvation. In verses 41 to 43, you read about these laws for manslayer, somebody who accidentally kills somebody and God mercifully sets up a, a, a city of refuge for them to go. You know, this wasn't just for a better society, but to teach God is merciful, even to people who accidentally do things like uh, murder, you know, God is one who protects. His salvation is one of mercy. So you see, Moses is preaching for practical intent that would lead people to living in a certain way that would express, you know, God's plan for what he's doing in the world, even in little things and like, well, why do you have cities of refuge for people who accidentally kill other people? You know, there's an explanation even for something like that. So Moses preached with practical intent, not just for individuals, but for people within a corporate body and in a global plan that reaches all the way back to the beginning and all the way forward to the ending and beyond. And I'm going to close with reading a, kind of like a setting Deuteronomy in the context of the New Testament church that was written by Daniel Block. This is what we'll close with here. Ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created humankind on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever encounter their gods directly? as you have encountered him and still live? Or has any God ever dared to invade the kingdom of darkness and take for himself a people from the midst of that kingdom by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Jesus Christ your God has done for you on the cross before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, God, there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he came as the divine word, that he might reveal the Father to you. And on earth he revealed his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he loved the ancestors and chose their spiritual offspring after them and brought you out of the kingdom of darkness by his great power, disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him in order to grant us an inheritance such as we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for these realities of your covenant love and you teaching us the nature of them and to heighten our awareness of life within the body of Christ, the relationship of how we live to others and with others and what that communicates about your global, cosmic, historical, redemptive plan throughout all of history. I pray that you help us to read the Bible as you wrote it, to read it as you teach us to read it, to give us your view of the world and of history to help us to most faithfully live by it and to make you and your salvation known to the world. Amen.